Hey, would you give it up for Nathan for stepping in? <laughs> I'm proud of our students. Grateful to have you, brother, and uh, look forward to a great day. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm excited to be here today. It's always, uh, you know, the nature of my responsibilities over at the school. I travel a bit, and so I don't always get to be here every single Sunday morning. But it's always a highlight for me when I look up on the calendar and I see that, hey, I'm actually home this weekend, and I get to go to church at FBNO. So that's always a fun thing, and uh, it's even an added bonus when I get to preach. And so I'm really excited to do this. It's like coming home uh, to people that I love and uh, even to just the times we've shared together. So thank you so much for opening the pulpit for me. I'm grateful for Pastor Chad. I was thinking about it uh, while you all were up here doing the mission report a minute ago. Uh, just two things I'm particularly grateful for, for Pastor Chad and uh, even what God's doing here at FBNO. Uh, it's regular now that we emphasize the Word of God. That's just an exciting thing. And I appreciate that stand. And we'll see more of that today in the text we're going to be in. And then I appreciate the fact that my pastor is overseas right now. That's really cool. And that another team just got back. FBNO, I want to encourage you, go get a passport. Go get a passport and let's go. Let's go to the nations. It's one of the most, uh, one of the most faithful things you can do in honoring and serving the Lord. It's also something that will revolutionize your life if you've never been. So I hope that you'll take that seriously and uh, go to the nations. First Timothy chapter four is where we are here this morning. Pastor Chad was just last week. He was in verse number one through verse number five. I'm picking up today verse number six and going down through verse number 16. And in many ways, it kind of continues on with the themes that he talked about last week. So if you would, let's stand together and let's read 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse number 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe these things command and teach. Verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Until I come, give attention to the reading, to the exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by the prophecy with the laying on the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear. Father, today we pray that your spirit would work among us, 
Today we pray for clarity as your word is preached. We pray for me, Lord, as I preach, and for everyone here as we all participate in this moment, that none of us would just be here in a status quo moment, but with genuinely open hearts and minds to what you want to say to us. Lord, you are our King, our Lord, and our Master, and to you we submit and surrender our lives. Speak to us now. Challenge us now. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be faithful to you in everything that we do. Lord, take those in this midst today that are apathetic and are weak-spirited in faith and shake them from it. Take those, Lord, that are hungry and thirsty and fuel them and feed them in your word. Take, Lord, those who are broken today and give them direction and give them hope. Lord, in and all these things, we pray simply that you'd make your people strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be a good servant? Let me back up maybe before that question. For some of us, maybe we may not even really quite appreciate why we would want to be a good servant. All right, so I'll come to that first question I ask in a minute. What does it mean to be a good servant? But let me back up here and let's focus on this question. Why would I or why would you want to be a good servant? Maybe if you're looking at that question just in the general throes and rhythms of life, you might not pay that a whole lot of attention. And it might be the kind of thing that you'd give very little thought to. But let me remind you of the big stuff, the heavy stuff. Let me hit hard for just a minute if I can. The reality of it is, is that there comes a day in my life and in yours when I will exhale and breathe for that last time. My heart will beat that last time. And the, Bi the Bible says that the spirit goes back to God where it comes from and the body goes back to the grave where it comes from or to the dirt and dust, which is quite literally from Genesis chapter 2, what I was formed and fashioned out. That day of ripping of body and soul comes from me and it comes for you. And the Bible says that it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. So all that to say, again, I'm not trying to startle anybody, but hey, this is Christianity. This is what the Bible says in it, the Psalm 90. Teach us, Lord, to number our days, meaning I'm supposed to live my life right now between the moment that I exist right now and that day of my last exhale, thinking about that day of my last exhale. Because when that day comes, I stand before the Lord. Now, the Bible says that for some, let's just be clear about that word, some. I did not say all, because the Bible does not say all. For some, God himself will say to them in that moment, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now do you want to know what it means to be a good and faithful servant? Not all. Uh-uh. Some. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I should number my days in the present, living in my nows for that moment when I stand before the Lord. And I should, quite frankly, I should obsess over those types of things. I should, not in some kind of dark, heavy, dismal way. Hey, listen, for the Christian, this is joy. 
The Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ, because he's living in his nows with the end in sight, and to die is gain. Oh, to hear my Lord say to me in those moments, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now that I can picture what that might be like for a moment, picture it with me, the sweetness of that, the joy of that, and the victory of that. And now long with me to have God Almighty say that to me. And if I want that, if I seek that, then I should want to know what does it mean to be a good servant? That's our opening question today. What does that mean exactly? Well, as it turns out, the Apostle Paul answers that question for Timothy. Now, just you might immediately, if you're familiar with the content and the terrain of First and Second Timothy and Titus, you may know that these are what we call pastoral epistles, meaning Paul the Apostle writing to a very young pastor. He's a young kid who's been thrust into pastoral leadership, and he's teaching them, him and discipling him on how to do that. And so if you know that, you may be inclined to say, well, that's for Timothy or people in ministry. That's not for me because I'm not. Hold up. This is still for every last one of us. What he's going to say to Timothy, you and I can, must, and should apply it to our lives for at least these two reasons. Remember that there is this sense that those who God puts before us as shepherds, they're put there to be examples and models for all of us to follow. So if Timothy is supposed to be doing these things, there's this very real indirect sense in which all of us must be as well. Second of all, remember that even though your paycheck may not come from some kind of vocational ministry, meaning you don't have the title of pastor or minister or such in a local church or some mission board, the reality of it is if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are called into his ministry and service. The question is not whether or not you're supposed to be serving the Lord. The question is how are you supposed to be serving the Lord? So quite frankly, this is for all of us. All right. What does it mean to be a good servant? Number one, and this might surprise you, verse number six and verse number seven, but as Chad has shown us, we've seen this quite a lot going through First Timothy. First thing, a good servant preserves and practices biblical faith. A good servant preserves and practices biblical faith. Here's, you're going to see it in just a second, verse 6 and 7. But again and again in the, the letters to Timothy, Paul just beats the drum of, hey man, stay with the word of God. Hey man, don't flinch from the Word of God. Put the Word of God up in front of people. Read it. Digest it. Exercise yourself towards the understanding of it and keep and proclaim good doctrine. Verse 6, listen to what he says. If you instruct the brethren in these things. What things? Well, the stuff that he just said, the passage that Chad looked at last week, but also everything else is ties in with it here. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ or a good servant of Jesus Christ. So in other words, quite literally what he said to us so far is a good servant of Jesus Christ is simply, simply someone who takes what this book says and makes it clear. We have to be a people that, quite frankly, just stand on the Word of God. I came home last week from church. Samantha wasn't feeling well, so Tara wasn't able to come. And I came home last week from church and I said, you know, I'm grateful. 
I'm grateful that my pastor got up there and he just said, look, y'all, this is the word of God. We must stand on it. Watch what else he says. You'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ. You'll be nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Verse 7, he's going to tell us to, pro, to reject the profane and old wives' fables. There were these goofy, weird, strange, very idiosyncratic kinds of heresies springing up in the first century, kind of like it does in our day. Anytime you take a political movement and you try to mix it with Christianity, you know, you can take a lab and you can take a poodle and you can make a labradoodle, right? At the end of the day, that's just a mutt, right? Anytime you take a political movement and Christian doctrine, you don't have Christianity. You have a mutt. And God's not interested in that kind of thing. Look, they were doing it in the first century. Here's what was happening. Essentially, there were all kinds of little heretical movements. One big one that was around in that era is called Gnosticism. Now, this ties in with some philosophy. This is the kind of stuff that I do. Plato, the greatest philosopher in history, believed that bodies and souls were fundamentally different kinds of stuff and that the person was spirit only. Think of, your, think of it this way. The person is the soul in a container of sorts. And the container is the body. This body is of no value. In fact, worse than that, it's kind of a prison. It's bad. Spiritual stuff is good. Physical stuff, by virtue of being physical, is evil and bad. And so there were heresies that were born out of that. In, in Christology, for example, people denied the humanity of Jesus because they were hooked on this idea. They said Christ could be spirit only, but there is no real incarnation, no physical embodiment of human nature that Christ would have had because physical stuff is bad. You know what, man? That's just heresy. That's just heresy. Here's another way this doctrine would come up. They would say all kinds of goofy things like don't marry, abstain from certain kinds of meats and other things like that. What they're doing is they're taking philosophy, mixing it with Christianity, and you got a mutt. And Paul says reject it. Now here's the deal, y'all. Watch this. The only way you will know to reject it, the only way you will know to not be duped by false ideas in the world that are mixed in with a little bit of this and a little bit of that is if you're standing on the word of God. This is why he says in verse six, instruct the brethren in these things. A preacher's most fundamental job, a pastor's most fundamental job is to stand up and hold up the word of God. And the degree to which we, the people of God, are standing on the word of God, that is the degree to which we're being faithful, my friends. Listen to this. He goes on. Reject these old wives' tales and wives' fables. Verse number 12, listen to this, or verse number 13, I'm sorry. He says, till I come again, give attention to the reading and to the exhortation and to doctrine. Uh, look, there's this obsession that Paul has over right theology and biblical fidelity. I'll just say this to you. Always be leery in your own heart and your own mind when you are inclined to say, I know the Bible says this, but. Look, biblical fidelity is a big deal to God. It is a big deal to Christianity. You can do whatever you want to do, but don't say, I know the Bible says this, but, and then go reject it and say that you're following Christ because you're not. Uh, listen, time and again throughout the Bible, 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema itself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then here comes the command, love the Lord with all your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's the command. But interesting, he tells them, listen to me and obey. And before he gives them the command, he clarifies who he is. Why did he do that? That's weird. He did it because they just come out of a pagan context where they probably had all kinds of false ideas about who and what God was. And they were about to go into another different pagan context where they would have all kinds of false and bad ideas about who and what God was. So it's as though God is saying, remember who I am and be faithful to thinking about me properly. Listen, y'all. Some people get into biblical study and the study of theology and they they do it (laughs) they do all that kind of academic and intellectual work for its own sake, meaning they become mere academicians, they become mere theologians, they become mere biblical scholars. Man, if that's all you're going to do, be prepared for disappointment, be prepared for destruction, because while while Christianity is intellectually robust, Christianity is not first and foremost an intellectual sport. This is about obedience to Jesus Christ. But let me say this. The reason doctrine matters and the reason the scriptures matter to us is because the world is full of false ideas. God has told us who he is, what we are to say, what we are to preach, and what we are to affirm. And it's a matter of life and death. Really? Yeah, look at what it says. And verse number eight, bodily exercise profits a little. I'll come to this in a minute. But godliness has profit for this life and the life to come. Uh, Look, verse number 16. Verse number 16, take heed to yourself and to doctrine. Continue in them, doctrine. For in doing this, listen, to life and death, you'll save both yourself and those who hear. Listen, we live in a world that likes to make faith itself, just as a concept, the end. You're cool, you're good. As long as you just have faith, that is, what are you talking about? Faith, just like it itself, just having faith in about anything is supposed to be the goal here. Yeah, you put your faith in the wrong object and watch what happens. You remember Bernie Madoff? There were a lot of people that just had faith and they put all their eggs in his basket and he ended up in jail and then dead. And those folks ended up broke. You put your faith and your trust in the wrong object, in the wrong ideas, it will lead to destruction, my friends. This is why doctrine and scripture matter to us. And a good servant is someone who stands where Christ told us to stand and affirms what he told us to affirm and doesn't compromise or waffle because the world wants to redefine us. So number one, a good servant is someone who preserves and practices biblical faith. Number two, a good servant strives for godliness. A good servant strives for godliness. Now, here's how he says this in verse number eight. For bodily exercise profits a little. I don't like exercise. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. Some of my friends that talk about running, like what is wrong with you? Well, you get your runners high. When? Mile seven, bro. I'm going to need that high like step seven. 
not mile seven. I mean, you about killed me getting through mile six here, man. What are you talking about? I don't like lifting weights. I, I don't like it. I feel terrible when I do it. Like, why would you intend to do that? I know you got to do it. As much as I don't like it, let me be real clear. Some people want to read this passage here and say, you see here, exercise doesn't matter. This is not a prescription for you to ignore your blood pressure, okay? Amen. This is not a prescription for you to just eat whatever you want. That's not what he's doing. He's using physical health as a metaphor to help us see a bigger health, a more important health. So verse eight, for bodily exercise profits a little. There are some people that will obsess over the bodily. They will exercise. They will eat exactly the right kind of stuff. Man, give me a donut. They will obsess over those kinds of things. But watch, here's his point. But godliness, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having a promise of the life to come. You catch that, right? Meaning, I give myself to Christ, the king and his kingdom because there's a kingdom coming, right? I put my equity in that kingdom, not this one. And there's profit for me in the life to come, but also this is where Christians, listen to me. I, I think Christians, we have a very anemic, diminished, dinky view of the value of godliness in the here and now. Notice what he says here. There's value for the promise of the life that now uh, to come, but also for the one that now is. Meaning godliness is good for you right now. Look, I'm not saying that if you walk with God and you're really godly and do you know, all the right things he wants you to do, I'm not saying there won't be hardships. There will be. There will be difficulties along the way. But what I can tell you, this is kind of like the thrust of the whole book of Proverbs, right? Is that when you walk with Christ and you stand where he stands, you'll be able to look back and you'll say, my, 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 how good God has been to me. Psalm 1, for instance, blessed is the man who, you know, walks not, stands not, and sits in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the river's water. That's a picture and a metaphor of flourishing and abundance. Whatsoever he does will prosper in his way. This is the promise. There is value in walking with God, not just because heaven's coming, my friend, when we'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's value for it in the here and now. Listen, Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I walk with Christ and I exercise myself towards him. That is to say, I seek him and I strive for him and I commune with him and I let his spirit and his word conform me because it is right and it is good both for heaven and for now. Yeah, bodily exercise is important. Do you know what? You can have great abs. <laughs> I don't. You can have great abs and you can be an absolute wreck right? But I get my heart right. I get my life right. I walk with him. I pursue him. Man, that's valuable for the here and for the now. So a good servant is someone who preserves and practices biblical faith. A good servant is someone who strives for godliness. Third, I want you to see here, a good servant is faithful in ministry itself. Faithful in ministry itself. I'll show it to you in verse number nine and verse number 10, but let me preface what I'll read here and try to unpack for you with this. Again, there is this really bad dichotomy 
It's something we have to be careful with because on the one hand, it is true that there are those who are, quote, in the ministry. Your pastor, Pastor Chad, is in the ministry. And there's some that don't get paid. Their vocation is not that. So they're, I guess, in a vocational sense, they're not in the ministry. Now let's just stop right there. We don't need to go any farther with that because what happens then next is people do try to go farther with it and they say, I just have a regular job. No, you have a providentially appointed place and post in this world is what you have. Say, I'm a lawyer. I'm a banker. I'm a school teacher. I'm in the military. I'm a police officer. I'm a, I'm a businessman or a businesswoman. You are providentially placed where you are as a Christian, right? And as such, think about the access to hurting people broken people that you have on a day-in and day-out basis that the pastor of this church will never have access to. Because they'll never darken that door. They'll never come on a Sunday. They won't come to any of the special occasions. They might even think real bad things about Christian people. They're a hard no about church and the things of God. And any professional in the ministry kind of person that tries to go talk to them, it's, it's a dead end. It's a, it's a non-starter. And so no problem though, right? Because providentially, God placed you there, right? Do you think about it that way? Or do you merely, merely think about the responsibilities you have tomorrow? You say, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom. You still have access to lots and lots and lots of people in the, in the rhythms and flows of your life to impact them for the gospel. So we got we to gotta quit thinking. Look, if you're born again and you have the name of Christ stamped upon you, then you are his servant. That's how it works. Now, as such, listen to what the Bible says. Verse number 9. Verse number 10, and my point here is that a good servant is faithful in the ministry itself. And by in the ministry, I don't just mean like a pulpit ministry. I don't just mean like a missiological ministry. I just mean you ministering to people quite bluntly and quite basically. Verse number nine, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, all these good doctrine things. And therefore, because of this, to that end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. You catch that? For that reason, because of the truth of the Bible, because of the reality of who we are, we now both labor and suffer reproach. Let me unpack both of those things because let's start with the basic one first. We labor. We do labor for what? We labor for the gospel. We labor for the kingdom. We labor for our Lord Jesus Christ himself, right? Imagine the impact that a world would see if a, the body of Christ, the whole body of Christ, with all of its fabric and all of its members, rose to its feet and took the banner of Christ forward and labored for him in those dark, hard, broken, lost places. What's your place? Where's your sphere? And are you entering into those spheres, laboring for him, giving yourself for him? Or do you say, well, that's not my thing. I'm not in the ministry. If that's what you're doing. You're looking at it completely wrong. God redeemed you, called you to himself, 
And he's placed you in those places providentially for his kingdom's sake. Go into those places and labor for Christ. Now, you might think to yourself, well, if I go into those places and make it known that I love Jesus and really even try to minister for those things, people might not like me. I might get critiqued. I might face pressure. There could be difficulties. Yes. For this reason, we both labor and suffer reproach. Meaning, hear me, please, increasingly more, you and I are going to have to be ready to do this. Meaning that, yes, I may have to step into those places and take my lumps for Jesus. I might just have to be prepared to endure a hard comment. Whoop-dee-doo, somebody said something bad about us. I might have to face a pressure that I don't like. I might lose something that I want. I might lose something I need. But for these reasons, because we're so convinced of the truth of Christianity, the life and death nature of Christianity, the redeeming power of Christianity, right? That Jesus saves and redeems and nothing else does. And that his word is true. Because of those things, we're so ironclad on that, so convinced we step into those places and we labor for him and we're prepared to suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God who is, let me go ahead and deal with this. There's this really hard, weird, maybe problematic statement. Who is the savior of all men, especially those who believe? Wait a minute, we tend to think it's only those who believe that he is the Savior for. But here he says, well, it's especially true of them, but he's the Savior of all men. What does that mean? Is this teaching what we would call inclusivism? That everybody, everywhere is saved in Jesus? We're all going to heaven? No, that is not what he means. Quite literally, what all he means by this is there is a very loose general sense in which God gives grace to all people everywhere. The wages of sin is death. And I sin, and you sin, and everybody else out there sins, and notice they don't fall over dead immediately. That's grace. You know, he causes the rain to to pour on both the righteous and the unrighteous, right? And he provides for all the earth. There is that sense in which he is the Savior of all people, but especially for us in the sense that he's redeemed our soul, right? Right? The point here is very simple. A good servant is someone who steps into the places that God has put them and there in those places does the work of ministry. My dear friend, again, please, I beg you, catch the vision. Let your heart grab a hold to this. Let it shape you. You're not just an X. Fill in the blank there with whatever your career is that's outside the ministry. No, you are providentially placed where you are for kingdom purposes. Step into those places and labor and suffer reproach for him. A good servant preserves and practices biblical faith. A good servant strives for godliness. A good servant, thirdly, is faithful in ministry. Fourthly, watch this, verse number 12, students in particular, young folks, he's circling in on you here, so I will too. Verse number 12, a good servant models Christ-likeness. Notice what he says in verse 12. Hey, students in particular, listen up. And older folks, this doesn't mean that we don't do the same. 
He says what he's about to say to Timothy because Timothy's young and he's placed in a place of responsibility, kingdom responsibility. And there'd be all kinds of people that would say, ah, we shouldn't listen to him, he's a kid. So he says in response to that reality, verse number 12, let no one despise you because of your youth. Meaning they're gonna look down on you and they're gonna, they're gonna say, what can students do? Eh, nothing. I'm a teenager. Let no one do that to you. And the way you don't let them do that to you is not by being entitled and saying, you better not do that to me. The way you don't let them do that to you is step up and be different. Watch what he says. Be students, young folks, be everything they don't expect you to be. I'll come back to that. Be everything they don't expect you to be. Be an example to them in the word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Now, let me just say this, and then we'll come back to a couple of those phrases here. Here's, what, here's the deal, man. Students, if I can say, and I'm pointing at y'all because I just see a big bunch of you right there. There's some right there too, some of mine. Young folks, hear me. This world expects nothing of you. Expects you to be goof-offs. Expects you to be irresponsible. Expects you to prolong your adolescence and just sow your wild oats. In fact, it even encourages it and celebrates it. Guys, you're supposed to be... I need to be careful how we describe it. You're supposed to be so sexually oriented and so indulgent of those things. Everybody just gives you a pass. And girls, you're supposed to dress the part to feed it. And the pressures are just there for you. And there's no real expectations for you to be responsible or godly or any of those things. And I'm just telling you, man, no. The world might not expect anything of you, but God does. Here it is. Be an example to everyone. You do it. You be the people that nobody expects. Here's what really excites me about your generation. I actually sense and see that God is doing something in your generation. A generation perhaps that's been coddled. A generation that's, that no one's expected much of. But here's what's true about this generation. You can shake them a little bit. You can inspire them a little bit. You can cast a vision for them and you can charge them. And they will rise to the occasion like really no generation I've seen yet. So do it. So do it. Rise to the occasion. Be what they don't expect you to be. What does that look like, you ask? Well, be an example to the believers in the Word. Why would you not know the Word inside and out? You imagine how powerful it is when all of a sudden some teenager knows the Word of God so deeply and so richly, it just kind of catches everybody's attention. Be an example that way, in the Word. Be an example in your conduct. Again, the world has a conduct code that it will accept for you and, accept and, and, and expect nothing beyond that. But you are supposed to be the kind of person that has such a Christ-like conduct. Be an example of them in the Word and conduct in love. Students, young folks, listen to me. Uh, FBNO, you'll remember I talked about this back in the day when I was your interim. The world we live in is so condescending, so vitriolic, so sarcastic, so uncivil in the way we discourse back with each other. And man, Christians, we got to be different from that. And students, there's a burden there and a calling on you to be that generation that will do differently. 
Be the kind of people that's not always looking to tear down, but be the kind of people that's always looking to show love and compassion to people. In spirit, meaning that there's a spiritual depth to you and a spiritual maturity, it should be there in you and it should surprise people that you're just that spiritually mature. In faith, meaning you're the kind of person who's just faithful to him and believing that the Lord's going to do something in your life and impurity. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, doesn't this touch on the one that's hot in our culture right now. This world is so impure, filled with such raunchiness, celebrated, indulged, and expected. God does not expect that from us. Be an example in these things. A good servant, listen to me, preserves and practices biblical faith. A good servant strives for godliness. A good servant is faithful in ministry. A good servant models Christ's likeness. And this last one, just very quickly, a good servant stewards. You know what that means, right? Stewards, I don't own it, but I have been entrusted with it. A good st- a servant stewards his or her spiritual gifts. A good servant stewards his or her spiritual gifts. You say, I don't know about my spiritual gift. Ah, well, then let's bring you in. Let's talk about discipleship. Let's explore that together as a church and as members. Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that every last person that God redeems for himself, they become an individual member of the body of Christ. And every single member has an important part to play. And therefore, it talks about the spiritual gifts that come from that. You have been entrusted with something, some kind of natural spiritual ability. And I'm not talking talent here. I was not a speaker person. I I couldn't stand in front of a class of 12 people and give a book report when I was coming along. And then the Lord says, hey, guess what you're going to (laughs) do? You're going to stand up and preach a lot. It's a spiritual gifting And you know what? If I had refused to do it, if I had refused to give it, if I had refused to stand in those moments, God would judge me for it. So here's my question for you. What are your spiritual gifts? Notice what he says here in verse number 14. Don't neglect. You hear that? Don't neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy and the laying on the hands of the eldership. Now, maybe you've said, well, nobody's ever laid hands on me. What he's talking about here is that this is, again, a spiritual entrustment. And then he says this in verse 15, meditate on these things, meaning fix your mind on those things. Put your heart on those things. God, you've given me these abilities and these capacities. Lord, what can I do with them? Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. And then he closes with that verse 16, which we've already read. Take heed to yourself and the doctrine, continue in them, and in so doing, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. There will come a day between now and there when I will breathe my last breath I'll stand before my maker, my redeemer, and the greatest love of my life. And I long, I thirst to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant.
Man, I want to know what that means to be a good and faithful servant. And I want to give myself to it. I hope that you do too. Lord Jesus, we love you and we are so very, very grateful to be your children. Teach us to love what you love. Teach us, Lord, to give ourselves to what you would have for us. And help us to be faithful, good servants. Have your way in our heart and in our midst. The band is coming back up to lead us in one more song. There's an opportunity. I have a few other things we've got to do here today. But there's an opportunity, most important, most important. We need to respond to the Lord. And I don't know exactly what your response ought to be. But I do need to press on you that you can't come and hear the word of God and just off with next. Man, what is he pressing on your heart? And are you going to be obedient to him? In just a moment, I'm going to stop talking and the altar is going to be open. You need to pray. Would you come up here and just pray? Maybe even take somebody with you and just say, come up here and pray with me. Brother Gary's going to be standing here if you want to pray with somebody. And if he gets full, I'll step back in and I'll pray with you. Let's stand together. You respond as the Lord leads.